We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Well, welcome to August 16th, which is a very uh, eventful day in music history. We'll tell you why in a moment. Welcome to Hamilton Today. Ted Michaels in for Scott Thompson on today and for the rest of the week. And lots of stuff going on. Right off the top, we should mention our online poll question is this. Yesterday, it was a union representing Ontario's education workers is discussing taking a strike vote. Do you think there'll be a work stoppage? 58.4% said yes. 41.6% said no. So there you have it. Coming up on the program today, in a couple of minutes, boy, the backlash continues. There has been a lot of uh, social media chat, uh, Twitter, Facebook, a lot of all the comments, some vitriolic comments. Uh, Bill Brio will be joining us to talk about the continuing backlash to CTV suddenly dropping Lisa Laflamme. And uh, the also uh, the uh, final medical examiner's report about the tragedy involving uh, the movie Rust that uh, Alec Baldwin was involved in, it has been determined to be an accident. So we'll have more about that coming up as well. Um, also coming up, the owner of the Montreal Alouettes will be joining us. wanted to find out his thoughts about being a new owner in the Canadian Football League, a relatively new owner. Uh, he has gone on social media that he wants to pack McGill Stadium Saturday when the Tiger Cats play there at 4 o'clock on CHML. Um, I'm also going to be asking him about those, you know, those horns they had at the game uh, last time in Montreal. Twitter, Rick Zamperin actually started. He was the first tweet that I saw, and he just kind of went from there. Everybody was talking about these two people sitting in the stands with those air horns. I'm not even going to play the audio because it's terrible. It just really, Even my wife, who doesn't follow football, was in the other end of the house. She goes, are they back? So I had to watch that game almost on mute, about as far away from mute or as close to mute as you can get with actually being on mute. So we're going to talk about that, although he, I think he probably doesn't want to make any changes. Uh, as August hits the halfway point, back to school taking on more significance than ever, according to a new national survey of, uh, of Canadians, it's the Stressed by the Bell survey showing 3 in 10 parents and 4 in 10 post-secondary students afraid they'll need to take on debt to support this year's school expenses. By now, we hope uh, that you have heard about the event that we're presenting. Uh, Proud to present the Long Road Back. Uh, It's an event in support of the Canadian Mental Health Association, Halton Region. It'll be um, coming up on uh, September the 28th at the Burlington Performing Arts Centre, featuring music by Spoons. Special guests, Marshall Potts, and uh, I'll be up there as well, kicking off the evening, hosting the event, talking about uh, anxiety and mental health and how I fought back from uh, anxiety, which was a kind of a debilitating uh, type of thing. And if you've had it, you know what I'm talking about. So we will have a chance for you. Actually, you know what? You can do it right now. You go to 900CHML.com. You go to the contest page and win VIP tickets to the long road back. Now, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is just enter to win. Right there, you got your name and your, your date of birth and your address and everything else. It's a VIP package. You'll get there before the show. Special VIP reception hosted by yours truly. And then you get really good seats 
to enjoy the show and also get the message about mental health, mental health stigma, and how uh, we can fight that battle together. So go to that website, 900CHML.com, enter it right now, and um, hope to see you at that event. So that's some of the stuff coming up uh, today. Also, we'll be talking a little bit later on about Elvis, the 45th anniversary today of the death of Elvis. Now, of course, this is the same year. I, the people I've talked to have been raving about this movie, Elvis. They uh, say that it has been uh, just a, an incredible look at the life of Elvis, that the guy who plays Elvis just really nails the part. And you've got Tom Hanks, who's playing the colonel, and talking to the people in the newsroom today, and they say, you know, the, the issue is if you get away from knowing who Tom Hanks is and how he looks, then he really does nail the part. So we'll be talking about that as well. And then we'll also be talking about something that, um, well, the Internet can be overheated. And people forget that it is a physical thing. And as we talk about the, uh, uh, the effects of climate change, uh, we shouldn't laugh, but the Internet literally can be damaged. So we'll have that coming up as well. And as we say, chances for you to win tickets uh, to all kinds of shows and uh, talking a little bit about uh, the life of Elvis. And I know for the older uh, demographic, the older people in our audience, um, takes back uh, to this date in 1977, which is 48 years ago. Now, wait a minute, 77 to uh, 45 years ago. Um, where were you when... You got the news that Elvis passed away. I know that everybody talks about it, and everybody kind of remembers with JFK and when Elvis passed away. So uh, we're not asking you for your, you know, open up the phone line. Well, maybe we will, but just kind of think back to what happened on this day back on August 16th, 1977. The uh, controversy continues. Twitter is ablaze. A lot of people are upset, uh, but in the end, Will it really matter? And I'll tell you why I asked that question in just a moment. We're talking about uh, the news that we had yesterday. Longtime CTV news anchor Lisa LaFlemme uh, speaks out uh, after her contract ended. And joining us to talk about that is television critic and author Bill Brio. Bill, first of all, thank you for joining us. Never a dull moment, huh? No, there isn't, Ted, that's for sure. So the reason I say um, this, look, let's talk about what happened? Obviously, Lisa LaFlamme was let go. She went on Twitter yesterday and gave her statement. There's been a lot of uh, people saying that they will never watch CTV uh, uh, just because of what happened to her. And I'm of the belief that, you know what, this will be a hot topic for a while. Things will calm down, and then the fall will start. And it's not that people forget who Lisa LaFlamme is, but the story will uh, not have legs anymore, and people will go on with their lives. Is that a fair statement? I think it is, Ted, you're right. I mean, I think people have already, they're going to Twitter now looking for who, which, you know, Kardashian Pete Davidson is going out with this week or, you know, the news cycle is frantically fast and uh, people do move on. Now, one of the stories that came out today was that a Bell executive uh, who was the one that fired Lisa LaFlamme basically did it almost because he was, if you will, getting even with her. One of the quotes from one of her colleagues said he didn't like it when women pushed back, and apparently Lisa LaFlemme, to her credit, if she didn't like something, went in to plead her case, and apparently this individual didn't like that. Did you hear that story? I did see that, uh, and, you know, it's not outrageous to suggest that. There was a new news director hired in January at Bell Media, 
Uh, and uh, But even if you go back a year before that, a year and a half ago, there's a whole new regime came in, and uh, a lot of the a lot of heads rolled, and and, uh, and from the top down. So a lot of the guys I knew who were program buyers who would go and buy all the shows the new season, a lot they were just in bulk fired. So uh, the signal kind of came then from Bell that you know this idea like Lloyd Robertson being able to retire at 77 and have a year long victory lap, and um, that's just not going to be the case anymore. That the numbers in terms of people who watch the news who are under 50 are very low now. And the profit center that this once was for decades isn't quite as robust. So if your main anchor is making a lot of money, unfortunately, no matter who he or she is, I think their job is going to be looked at if the network is looking to cut you know, costs. Well, I can uh, go back last year, Bill, when we, and I think it was just about this time, maybe in September, uh, when uh, Rod Black, who of course uh, was on calling uh, games and uh, on TSN and worked and did skating on CTV and basketball and everything else, he all of a sudden announced that he was quote-unquote retiring. And at the yeah. time, we kind of thought, why was he doing that? Could that, ha- and of course, we never really know the situation, but he kind of hinted in a, a later interview that he was pushed out the door. Could that have been a case, again, of maybe making too much money for what Bell wanted as far as their business plan? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, and, and I think if you look at Bob McCowan, who was on radio for decades, television in uh, the Toronto-Hamilton market, um, you know, as a voice of sports, uh, he would brag about how much money he was making, you know, and suddenly he was gone. So I, I just think, you know, it's, it's a time if you're in the media, if, you know, I've written it, I've been fired from newspapers and magazines and you know it's a it's just a it's a time of transition and certainly uh the swing to the digital age is affecting all of us and i think that's what happened to lisa laflamme who's fantastic you know she deserved to absolutely stay in that anchor chair but Times are changed. Bill, when you mentioned digital, though, and we know that that in many ways is the way things are going, but yet there still has to be somebody that, if you will, when you click on your phone, there has to be somebody there on the other side, if you will, presenting the news. So are they saying that they can get, uh, here it comes, somebody cheaper to, if you will, do the stuff digitally as opposed to Lisa LaFlamme, who's been there for 35 years? Well, I bet Bill is, they've, they've sort of built in that the news numbers will take a hit. For sure. But um, I think that if the people who stop watching are over 50, maybe they don't care so much. And I think that's just part of the strategy, I guess, in hiring a much younger anchor. But, you know, news is news. It doesn't really matter how old you are. And uh, certainly if you look at in the United States in terms of sportscasters and newscasters, there's a lot of older people who deliver the news because people tune in to see familiar faces and voices and Trust those people. That was Lloyd's slogan, you know, trust and tradition. So certainly Bell has swung a long way away from that, and we'll see if it costs them. All right, so now let's uh, shift gears quickly, Bill, and talk about uh, the news that came out uh, earlier today uh, that the fatal film shooting by actor Alec Baldwin was an accident, according to a medical investigator. took a long time for them to make that determination. Uh, I don't really think anybody should be surprised, but you kind of feel bad for Alec Baldwin because, my Lord, he was he was put through the ringer through all this. He was sort of uh, put through the ringer for sure, and, of course, so were the families of the lady who was the camera 
cinematographer and the director and was injured. Uh, it's just a terrible thing happened. Uh, and it does, uh, but it makes you wonder, you know, when you turn on TV, you go to a movie, there's 45 people being killed in every second movie now and TV show. They're bringing back criminal minds next season on Paramount Plus and, it's just, even in streaming services now, the violence and the guns and the guns and the guns. So you're going to keep having scenes of violence and guns. It, you know, it's surprising there haven't been more accidents. Uh, and I know that um, there are those, like, I wonder now, uh, well, there you go, Alec Baldwin is being sued by the family of the uh, cinematographer that, would, that was killed on the film set. Um, you would hope for, for his career that maybe things will calm down, but uh, I don't know, looking at um, what's been going on, th- this thing, even though it's been ruled an accident, I don't believe it's over yet for Alec Baldwin. No, and I don't think people are going to rush out to see an Alan Baldwin movie for a while, you know, and, and it is, because you're right, This, you know, you hear that saying there's no such thing as bad publicity, but in this case, there is, and I think... Uh, he may not be as aggressive in terms of chasing parts. He's an older actor now, but it's certainly, um, if people are in a casting situation, his value has gone down in terms of drawing a crowd, I would think. But you never know, Ted. Maybe maybe there's a curiosity to him, and people do um, like you know comeback stories, but he's going to have to wait a while. You're right. All right, so that's the update on what's happening in television land. Bill Brio, television critic and author, thanks for uh, taking the time, Bill. Enjoy the rest of the day and, and enjoy the rest of uh, August until we're, we're not that far away from, from Labor Day. Let's put it that way. You're right, Ted. It's beautiful out there. Let's get going. All right, thanks very much, Bill. So there you have it, uh, the uh, update on uh, the story that just won't go away, the update on what happened to Lisa Laflamme and uh, what the situation is with Alec Baldwin. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Good afternoon. Afternoon, actually. It's Tuesday, August 16th, and it's a beautiful sunny afternoon. And hopefully it'll be that way on Saturday in Montreal when the Tiger Cats host, or when the Tiger Cats visit the Montreal Alouettes. And we'll be hosting the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Fascinating man. He's the owner of the Montreal Alouettes, and he joins us on the phone. I know he's very busy. Gary Stern joins us. First of all, Gary, thank you for taking the time. It's a pleasure to talk to you. No problem, Ted. Uh, happy to be on, and I don't know who you know in Montreal, but my media team must be really mad at me <laughs> putting me on with Hamilton the week we're playing them. <laughs> you know, I, do. I feel like a quarterback facing a blitz with no offensive lineman here. You know what, but, it, it, yeah. Gary, it, it actually is a chance for us to kind of get to know you a little okay. bit because I know that uh, you purchased the team, and last year personally was a horrendous one for you with a lot of uh, close family members that have passed away. So this is your first, right. if you will, full year at the helm of owning the Alouettes. Um I'm wondering when you took over and uh, then and now, has anything really jumped out at you when it comes to owning a team in the Canadian Football League? Yeah, how difficult it is to be a fan. Um, When you're an owner, you see so much more. When you watch a game, you admire what these players go through, the the reps, what goes through their mind in a five-second period. Um, It's fascinating, and you realize what great athletes these guys really are, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. 
So, Gary, let's talk a little bit now about uh, there was um, some uh, concern raised uh, the last little while. I know that uh, you are familiar, of course, with the Toronto area, and the Argonauts are not drawing well. I would say eleven or 12,000 people is what they're drawing at BMO Field. Uh, from your situation, now you own the Alouettes, but looking at the Argos, how concerned are you about what is happening with that football team when it comes to attendance? Uh, Ted, it's really something I'd uh, like to stay away from right. as much as any team in the league. Right. If you ask them that same question about the Alouettes, I'd like them to stay away from right. commenting on my team. I'm mm-hmm. more than happy to talk about mine, but uh, the Argo's been around a long time. Yep. I'm a believer that they got great management, great ownership. And they're going to figure it out. I know they're trying, but right. that's as far as I want to go on it. Okay, perfect, good. So let's talk about now, you have been uh, really, really uh, informative, entertaining on Twitter. Um, I've been following your comments. You said you want to sell out the stadium Saturday in Montreal at Molson against the Tiger Cats. Um, uh, I know that you like to go on Twitter. Um, how is the buzz about this particular game, which is a pretty big game for both clubs, Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock? Um, it's, the buzz is great. Um, I'm really hoping we get close to a sellout. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fan enthusiasm after the game in Winnipeg is um, sky high. And I'm saying, Hamilton... Uh, don't get me wrong, but everybody loves to hate them. You guys have a tough, physical team. You're coming in. Uh, we want to sell on that, too. And I think it's going to be a fantastic Saturday afternoon game. And I really think our attendance should be uh, much, much higher than any other week. So I'm excited about it. So um, from your standpoint now, uh, in, in making schedules, does a 4 o'clock start in Montreal on a Saturday work? I know that uh, sometimes they uh, played on Sunday afternoons in the fall and sometimes Thursday or Friday nights. Uh, interesting start time, 4 o'clock on a Saturday. We really hope so. We yep. haven't done it. We've been playing a lot of Thursday nights, which yep. haven't been ideal. Um, but the buzz, Saturday afternoon, good weather. Um, I really think we're going to get a lot of people out. We've got it four o'clock. It's a family day. We've got uh, great things for all the kids coming out, and um, we're really building. We're having a um, tailgate party, but for families and kids before the game. So we're really pushing the family day, getting the kids out. And I think we're going to get a really good, enthusiastic crowd. You know, uh, having been at that stadium before, uh, when you uh, talk about the tailgating with the uh, with the family and the kids in mind, where exactly uh, is it in the parking lot near the stadium there? Why did I bring it up? I knew you were going to ask me. Yeah. Um, I'm not positive, but yep. they sent me beautiful pictures of what we're going to, it's going to look like and do. Mm-hmm. I would believe it's probably a half to a mile away. Okay. And then uh, they walk it's a fair over, hike. and then they walk over in the sunlight. Now I have to ask you this question, Gary, because I know th- there was a lot of uh, chatter on Twitter, and I guess uh, from your team standpoint, it was good. Last game, there was a lot of complaining about people, uh, a couple of them that were sitting in the stands with air horns. And I know that the Alouettes uh, did a brilliant job on social media of saying, stop DMing us, we're not going to change. Has anything changed as far as that, Gary, when we watch and listen to the game on Saturday? uh, Will the people that want to bring those, whatever you call them, air horns or what have you, will they still be invited to do that? Um, I've left it up to uh, Mario 
and the um, stadium ops. Right. Um, I was there at the last home game, standing at the bench, and boy, you can hear those horns. <laughs> These people are passionate. They're playing. I turned around three or four times. Um, but it is what it is, and there are people who could say, you know, it's irritating. Right. So we're going to really try. We want that passion. We don't want to change these people who have been doing it for 10 or 15 years. Right. But we're going to try and find some form of accommodation. Um, that's what I've been told, and <laughs> hopefully it works, but then you still get people going, they're coming into our house, and we're going to be doing our thing. So we're going to be not playing it by ear. We're going to be working it, but it's a difficult um, it's a fine line. Yeah, it's very a fine, fine line. line. Gary Stern, the owner of the Alouettes, a huge ball game on Saturday. I always loved going to games uh, on the campus of uh, McGill State uh, University. It's just a great place to watch a football game, and I know yep. that when the fans get rocking, it really does get loud down there. So best of luck in the ball game Saturday. Best of luck uh, going forward, and hopefully the next time we chat, it'll be, uh, 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 you know, football talk maybe about, you know, who's facing whom in the playoffs and what chance you have and all that other good stuff. But we know that you're busy. Thank you very much for the time, and enjoy the ball game on Saturday. I appreciate it, Ted. Thank you very much. All right. There's Gary Stern, the owner of the Alouette. So kind of... Yeah, the those air horns, maybe they may be tweaking it a little bit, is what he's saying. But then again, a home field advantage is a home field advantage. Reminder, game is on 4 o'clock Saturday afternoon here on CHML, followed by the fifth quarter. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Back to school is now taking on more significance than ever. It's a new uh, survey of over 1,500 Canadians. I like the name of the survey because it's kind of a play on words. Stressed by the bell shows three in 10 parents and four in 10 post-secondary students are afraid that they'll need to take on debt to support this year's school expenses. Joining us to talk about this is a community engagement partner at uh, Bronwich and Smith, the people that were involved in that particular survey. And her name is... Elena Jarrett. Right there. Uh, hang on. I just, for some reason, I had something in my throat. Sorry. It's almost like Doug Ford. Elena Jarrett joins us. Elena, thanks very much for joining us. I apologize for that. How are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing well. I hope you're fine. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, everything is just one of those things that every so often when you, you know, you kind of choke, it doesn't matter. Anyway, off the top, top, uh, the the results of that survey, was that kind of um, an eye-opener for you? Or uh, I know when you do a survey, you don't usually go in with any preconceived notions, but did those numbers kind of jump out at you? They did. um, And the reason they did is because a lot of us have been in remote mode and uh, we haven't had to think about uh, back to school for the last two years and so we really haven't given it too much thought about those expenses but now that everyone's going back um, to school and they're going to have to be there in person and there's going to be lots of activities that they ha- that the kids have to participate and the young adults will be participating in as well then we we kind of thought well could this be something that consumers are concerned about? And sure enough, um, many Canadians are concerned about how they're going to be able to um, 
be able to cover all those expenses. But most of all, uh, how are they going to have those conversations with their kids when they can't afford to give them what they want or what they're asking for? Or how to keep up with the other kids, um, you know, um, what they already have, which some kids can afford more and others not so much. I know that uh, one of the things that we see, and it started already and kind of will be uh, peaking relatively soon as uh, we're less than uh, two weeks away from uh, September 1st, uh, parents and students over 65% are worried about this, uh, the, effect, uh, the effect of inflation. Now it came down a little bit today according to the numbers, but three quarters of parents and students expect even higher prices for school supplies and books due to supply chain issues. Normally... A lot of parents wait till the last moment for whatever reason. I would suggest that uh, perhaps they go and, uh, Elena, maybe, you know, shop around a little quicker to avoid maybe some of the stress. Oh, absolutely. I, I said before you go out shopping, I think the best thing to do is make a list and uh, create a budget of what you can really afford to spend. And this is a great teaching moment for you, for the family, uh, the parents to sit down with their kids. And when you're making the list and then you decide is it a need or a want and then can we really afford it? And have that conversation as openly and as honest as you can. And I know that this is um, difficult for, for grown-ups, but it can, uh, as it is for kids. But when you make this into a natural and easy conversation, kids will understand that, you know, you're not being mean that you don't want to get them the things that they're asking for. It's just that, you know what, mommy and daddy can't really afford it at this time, or it's not part of the budget. And once you start getting that into, like, the regular vocabulary of the family, household expenses uh, tend to be uh, unnatural. They're like, okay, you know, that's not part of our budget. We can't afford it. And that's okay. And budget doesn't have to be a bad word, right? Like, a lot of families uh, squirm. And I know when I was a kid, I used to squirm too, and I used to hear my mom saying, we can't afford it. But the reality is, uh, that is the truth. But if you say it in a different way, sometimes, you know, you know, money has to be spread out in a certain way. And the way we spread it out, it has to be so that we can fit, you know, rent, food and all that. Are you okay with that? You know, you do want to have, uh, you know, your favorite meal on every Saturday, right? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. So I'd rather have that than this. So let's start to choose it. This is a great teachable moment. And that's actually, when you look at the survey, over 56% agreed that they're using this time to teach myself and my child about money and budgeting, because one of the things, Elena, that they don't do, or they're starting to do in school finally, but hadn't done for a long, long time, is teaching kids about money, about the checkbook, about how things work, the old expression, money goes on trees. Kids don't really understand that. And as you say, now it sounds like maybe this has become a teachable moment. Their kids are finally starting to understand that this is how it works and you know so much money goes in so much money goes out that's not a bad thing it's certainly not i mean i know when my kid was young she would just point at the atm machine to say take the money out and i'd be like no you can't you have to first put money in so that it can come out and teaching them that it's a really great way for them to understand that if nothing goes in, nothing can come out. And understanding how money works, understanding you know how much you earn it, and how that money has to be spread out to all the household expenses, then that's really what we're trying to say. We're trying to say that it is doable, it is important, but most of all, it can be done together. Where it can be something that it's you know that people feel okay about talking about, and that's the biggest 
myth right now and it's like, oh, we shouldn't talk about money, but we need to talk about money because that's the only way that you're going to be comfortable about learning how to uh, budget, how to save, how to set financial goals. And that allows you to make really great, educated and informed decisions. Our guest is Elena Jarra, Community Engagement Partner at Bromwich and Smith, talking about the latest, the survey, Stressed by the Bell, when it comes to kids and parents and everybody else getting ready for school. Lena, I'm wondering, um, and it seems to have wreaked havoc on every aspect of our life for the last two years plus, and that, of course, was COVID and the pandemic. Uh, have things changed as far as affordability for a lot of parents because of what happened during the, the pandemic, according to your research? Well, according to, uh, to the research, it just shows that more and more Canadians are really struggling to get by. But, you know, you're not alone. So we're here. Bromwich and Smith has been around for close to 20 years. We've been serving the community uh, and Canadians to get out of debt. So if, even if you just have a question, even if you just want to talk about your financial situation, give us a call. It's a free consultation. That, and you'll be able to see exactly what options you have available. All right. Uh, and the last thing, um, when parents, as you say, go go back to school, as you say, you know, one of the things that they should do is maybe start now, don't wait till that Labor Day weekend, because it's almost, and I don't, I don't want to laugh at, uh, at what people are going through, but uh, Elena, I've been uh, at a store picking up something else on a Saturday or a Sunday of a Labor Day weekend, and look of absolute panic on some parents' faces when they realize they don't have the clipboards and the notepads and the pens and the pencils. Uh, shopping early is probably the best thing to do. It certainly is. But before you do that, you know what? Do an inventory of what you have around in the house because you may already have a lot of those items and you don't need to rebuy. So um, start looking around your house, uh, check out what you have, and then, like I said, make the list, create that budget, and go out and shop. Elena Jarra, Community Engagement Partner at Bromwich & Smith. Thank you very much for the update. Hopefully this will alleviate a little bit of stress for parents as they get ready for going back to school, which is coming quicker than people think. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Take care. Bye. And uh, there you have some information uh, about getting back to school. While the name Elon Musk has caused an awful lot of controversy, uh, not only because of the way he is, but uh, it he's getting a lot of mainstream public attention may not be a good thing. So we thought to ourselves, who do we talk to? A person never shy of an opinion. Haven't had a chance to talk to her in such a long time. Lorraine Sommerfeld from the Hamilton Spectator and a columnist with Driving.ca. Thanks for joining us, Lorraine. I got to tell you, I love your Saturday columns in the Spectator. They're a hoot. They're on Friday. I hope you like those oh, ones. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Why did I think Saturday? But you see, this is what I'm talking about. So, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, th- thanks for that. Yeah. I don't know why I... Never mind. You know. I've been on every day for the past 20 years. <laughs> no, no. You know what it is? Maybe it's because I don't get a chance on uh, Fridays. and reading. It doesn't really matter. Okay. So, let's now talk about... Um, touche. Let's talk about this whole e- Elon Musk situation where a lot of people are now getting getting concerned about buying a Tesla because of the owner. Does this surprise you? Well, no, because some of us have long tried to separate him out from the product for years, and it doesn't surprise me. He's an attention hound, and I think a lot of the stuff he's doing, especially lately, is just getting to a critical mass for people. I I don't think it's going to tank his sales, um, because People that love Tesla love Tesla, but it, it'll turn off new buyers to the brand, like people that maybe weren't thinking, maybe were thinking of going there. 
so his stalwart they'll keep coming back but you know it's he does a lot of dumb things <laughs> my next door neighbor actually bought a tesla and drove it up in the driveway last week and i was looking at it and asking about it what is the attraction if you will about this particular car that uh has raised the interest of a lot of people i think he he did it first he got there first and fastest and he, he was mass producing electric cars that were viable which is a big deal. The rest of the industry has been going at warp speed to catch up to him. And personally, um, he has a software company, and they build cars. When the traditional car makers catch up and do it, I think they're going to make better cars, like the actual cars. But there's no doubt about it. He has been light years ahead of everybody in this industry putting together this kind of a product. Um, I, I just think he's getting a little big for his britches, as my mother would have said. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I know that in your column in the Hamilton Spectator on Fridays, you love to talk about your mother and, and some of the uh, great advice. But let's flip this around, Lorraine, and talk about there are those that say uh, any publicity is good publicity. He has become a lightning rod. A lot of people don't like uh, what he's saying. But the fact that there's, they're still reading what he is writing and tweeting, uh, is that such a bad thing, though? Um, I, I think it's what we're stuck with now. Um, I I don't think it's a great thing because we've we don't really look at the content anymore. We just read the headlines, and that's an issue for we don't read very deep. It's like if you're in an airplane and look down and see a mass of water, you don't know if it's a lake or if it's three inches deep, you know, from a certain height. Mm-hmm. And I think we're collectively just passing over or giving up learning too much we're getting really shallow and when you've got someone who's noisy and 120 character bites Mm -hmm. and he's the richest man in the world um, he can tweak the markets he can do all kinds of stuff and he's doing it but we seem to watch a lot of people no names getting away with some increasingly ridiculous illegal behavior and we sit around going are you allowed to do that are you allowed to say that so we're kind of living in upside down times i I, I don't know. Yes, attention is good, but man, if you have that kind of power, why not do something good with it? Absolutely, because there are those that also complain when, when he went up in space and they said, for all the money that you spent, you know, you could have done something to help out. Oh, I don't know, the climate crisis on Earth. Yeah, well, the world does not need billionaires. It's insane. It's wrong. And you look, you look around the world, guess what? It's not going the right way. So I and again, this is a totally different topic, but uh, the imbalances are becoming bigger and bigger, and we're seeing the fallout in our communities, in our families, in our just everything, our culture in general. And I really think those imbalances are not good, and someone like Elon Musk, who could do good things, instead just entertains himself. Uh, how um, how well are, uh, I don't know if you have any type of... Evidence or anecdotal stories or what have you, Lorraine, but how well are Teslas selling in Canada? Oh, it, all EVs have picked up um, when the price of gas rocketed. Mm-hmm. So they're all selling better than they ever were. And Tesla's always been at the head of that because, like I said, they got there first and they were making more of them. Everyone is catching up. And there's been a, oh, billions of dollars piled into EV tech and development of EV. And in Canada, that means Ontario. So, I mean, why Ontario doesn't have incentives anymore makes no sense because the cars go to BC and Quebec. But anyway, another topic. Yep. Um, they're they're building more. They're selling more. Everybody's going to benefit from that to a point. 
Now let's uh, talk, uh, just kind of uh, clear the air for some people, because I, I don't know if this is a, a misconception or this is, again, anecdotal. Uh, from your experience, and our guest is Lorraine Sommerfeld, uh, the columnist at Driving CA, the Hamilton Spectator columnist, whose column is uh, on Fridays in the Hamilton Spectator. <laughs> Lorraine, um, if people wanted to get a car now, because we know in the past with COVID and supply chain issues, there were people that, uh, I know somebody who ordered a car several months ago and can't pick it up until November. Have things lightened up a little bit in that regard? The logjam's starting to move. Cars are being delivered. There's still shortages around the world. They're still um, periodic. We don't know when they're going to hit which country. And our cars are made from pieces from all over the place, so that makes it difficult. Um, prices of used cars are stabilizing a little bit, but they're still outrageous. And honestly, if you've got a lease right now and it comes due in the next few months, buy the car. I guarantee you the residual value is far lower than what that car is worth. The dealerships are going to be so mad that I'm saying this on the air. <laughs> buy the car. Even if you don't want it, turn around and sell it. You'll make It's, it's the only lottery ticket you may ever hold is a, you know, a two-year-old vehicle that you only have to pay you know, 15000 on or something. So that's still, that will settle, but people will revert back to new, new cars um, when more of the, those are available. But for right now, we're telling people, if you can wait, wait. We're still saying it because they're paying too much. And with the interest rates now getting jacked up on top of that, oh. <laughs> so, so last question, then I should hold on to my 92 Yugo then for one more year. <laughs> Oh, I want to watch you do that. <laughs> <laughs> Lorraine Sommerfeld, a columnist with Driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, thanks for the update on Elon Musk and the advice on what people should do with their cars. And, uh, and we'll be talking to you hopefully sometime soon. Thanks for the time. Thanks. See you later. All right. That's Lorraine Sommerfeld, as we mentioned. And uh, she uh, never at a, a loss for words. Uh, very, very... Uh, engaging person uh, who has a lot of uh, good things to say. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Shifting our attention to the 2020 mass shooting in Nova Scotia, the House of Commons Public Safety and National Security Commission is meeting today to discuss allegations of political interference in that investigation. Joining us to talk about this for a few minutes is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, Duff Conacher joins us. Duff, first of all, this uh, thanks for joining us. This story clearly is not going away, huh? No, well, we're we're hearing the testimony now of uh, the RCMP deputy uh, superintendent, who was one of the two who uh, wrote notes after the meeting, uh, saying that uh, the commissioner Brenda, RCMP commissioner Brenda Lucky had essentially pressured them to do something that would be interfering with the investigation because the prime minister and the public safety minister, uh, Mr. Trudeau and and Bill Blair wanted it, uh, this information and wanted it made public. Uh, so uh, he was testified before the commission in Nova Scotia and now testified today before the parliamentary committee. And I'm sure we'll have further exchanges in this committee when it holds hearings again in September. But for now, yeah, it's, uh, it is still a he said, she said situation, but you do have uh, more people saying that this was done than uh, are saying it wasn't done. And it doesn't look good right now for the Trudeau Liberals as a result. Now, uh, how in the end, as you say, it's a he said, she said situation, but, uh, you know, um, 
the Prime Minister has been embroiled in other sort of controversies in the past and has always emerged unscathed. He has been people pointing the fingers, getting upset and blaming him. But uh, uh, does he, I don't want to use the term escape, but, but does he emerge from this one uh, unbloodied? Well, I wouldn't say unscathed. The Liberals had a majority from 2015 to 2019, although it was a very, very slim majority based just on winning less than 40% of the vote. They actually won the most seats with the fewest percentage of votes of any party since Confederation. Uh, but then in 2019, 2021, returned with minority governments. So that's not emerging unscathed. Trudeau lost his majority, and he lost it because of um, breaking promises, to uh, run honest, open, accountable government and has been embroiled in many ethics scandals that I think chip away at uh, both his popularity and the Liberals' popularity, and that's been shown uh, in the last two elections where the Liberals have actually received fewer votes than the Conservatives, but uh, just by vote splits, won more seats. So um, he's also been found guilty by the ethics commissioner. And there's an ongoing uh, parallel situation of the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Right. And this whole uh, situation raises questions about why, whether the RCMP is independent enough from the Trudeau cabinet to be investigating these kind of situations, which is why Democracy Watch has called on the Ottawa police to take over the investigation of the uh, interference with the attorney general in that case in the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Because we haven't heard anything from the RCMP since August of uh, 2019, three years now, about their investigation of the SNC-Lavalin scandal and, and their serious questions about whether they're independent enough and competent enough to be investigating those kind of situations involving the Prime Minister. When you bring up SNC-Lavalin, you know, that's one thing that I had totally forgot about, and this is really the first time, Duff, as you mentioned, that people kind of looked at the Prime Minister with a, with a different eye, uh, seeing uh, all the... Uh, accusations and recriminations and and what had happened uh, allegedly with SNC-Lavalin. Uh, you would think that maybe the Prime Minister would have learned his lesson after that one, but clearly maybe he hasn't because he thinks he, uh, he can, I don't want to say he's above the law, but it certainly appears to be that he, um, you know, doesn't really think that he's going to be in any difficulty. Even though he was found guilty uh of violating the Conflict of Interest Act by yep. um, doing that inter- interference of mm-hmm. pressuring the Attorney General to stop the prosecution of, of SNC-Lavalin. Um, yeah, other ethics scandals with the Aga Khan, uh, where um, uh, Trudeau was found guilty also of uh, accepting the gift from the Aga Khan, who was uh, at the same time lobbying him for for federal government money, and with the We Charity scandal, Democracy Watch is in court challenging the ethics commissioner's ruling that let Trudeau off the hook, even though he did the same thing and had essentially the same relationship with the head of the of uh, We Charity. Uh, and we're in court challenging that decision because Finance Minister Bill Morneau was found guilty of violating the uh, Conflict of Interest Act, but not Trudeau, even though they did essentially the same things. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I don't know why he uh, he gave a great talk and set out a great standard for ministers and his uh, updated prime minister's code for ministers, said everyone has to uh, be ethical and honest and accountable, said that in all the mandate letters of the, the cabinet ministers, and yet he's the one who's been caught and found guilty more than any other cabinet minister. So he's certainly not walking the, the, the talk that he gave in November of 2015 after winning his first election. 
and uh, he's in trouble in this one, and SNC-Lavalin as well. Um, you know, you've forgotten about it because the RCMP has, as they often do, just said nothing for the last three years, hoping that everyone will forget, and then uh, they can just go on, you know, never reporting on what they found of an investigation of obstruction of justice by the Prime Minister and others. But that's not good enough. Uh, we need the rule of law upheld, and if the RCMP is not independent enough from the Prime Minister's Cabinet to be investigating situations involving Cabinet Ministers and the Prime Minister, then we need other police forces doing it and other prosecutors brought in. And that's why we've called in the Ottawa Police to uh, give an update and and take over the investigation of the SNC-Lavalin scandal. And just before we wrap up, when do you expect a decision will be made about that? I understand uh, sometimes in court things take a long time. Any indication of when you might be hearing something about that? Well, we wrote to the uh, Ottawa Police uh, about a month ago when these first allegations broke about political interference with the RCMP. And uh, we're pressuring them to give a response. Are they going to take over this investigation? Or is there truly no police force to go to when the prime minister and cabinet ministers are accused of wrongdoing? Because they either won't do it or the RCMP is not independent enough to do it competently. And that's a very bad situation to be in when the most powerful people in the country cannot be held accountable for violations of the law. So that's why we're continuing to press on that. And we'll continue to watch the situation too about the Nova Scotia Commission of Inquiry and and the ongoing investigations and conclusions uh, of those investigations about whether political interference happened by the Prime Minister and Public Safety Minister Bill Blair. All right. Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. We'll, we'll watch uh, what happens uh, on Parliament Hill now and, and in the near future as this thing continues to get a little, as we say, murkier for the uh, Prime Minister. Thanks very much for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you for your interest. Take care. All right. There's Duff Conacher, as we mentioned. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. On the day that Elvis Presley died, and our next guest, you know, I can see him up on a, on a karaoke stage in the white jumpsuit with the hair, singing away, doing, uh, oh, I don't know, singing Viva Las Vegas, perhaps. Eric Hopper, publicist and music commentator. All right, Eric, in your day, first of all, thanks for joining us. Have you ever done a karaoke and sung some sort of Elvis song? Oh, you think I need a karaoke machine to do that? No, <laughs> we call that in the office Friday. <laughs> I love um, it. No, I, I think the, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. The only time I've ever done live karaoke, yeah. uh, I did Suspicious Minds at the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto yep. with the Pursuit of Happiness backing me up. Wow. Um, and uh, that was it. And then um, I was 10 years into my career as a publicist, and I quickly realized I need to stay as a publicist. <laughs> You know, and sus- not sing at all. Suspicious Minds is probably my second favorite Elvis song. My favorite uh, is something that may, perhaps people forget about uh, Eric, and that was in 1976, I believe. If I can dream, he that was an absolutely just a, a yeah. A, 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 what a great song that was, and so and so eloquent to what Elvis was about. You yep. know, the whole handsome looks and the voice and the moves and yep. the addictive personality of him. None of that happens unless he grows up the way that he does absolutely in poverty with no money, no running water, 
and that turbocharged dream of becoming something and pleasing his mother and father and getting out of his house and making something for himself. It's such an apt song for him. You know, I, I haven't had a chance to see it, and I'm, I don't know if you have, but I've been told that the movie called Elvis, which is out this summer, uh, is absolutely gripping, and the guy who plays Elvis absolutely nailed it. Yeah, yeah, I have seen it, and it's pretty amazing. It just runs about three hours um, long, and I kind of wanted another three more hours. Apparently, there's a four-and-a-half-hour director's cut from wow. Baz Luhrmann that is going to be coming out later this year. Um, he, uh, it, it, It's amazing because you understand how, how boring America was for a lot of people, especially this newfound group of people called teenagers who didn't have anything geared towards them. You know, people forget like the music that was on the radio, people like a Frank Sinatra or a Lawrence Welk or many of the jazz performers are all amazing but there wasn't music for them and like most singers um, they geared toward their parents because that was who had the money to go out and dance or go and buy 78 records until Elvis came along this was the first time in, a, in probably forever that that teenagers finally got something for them and wow did they love it and angered the parents which made them even love it even more you know i'm i'm thinking back because we all you know on occasion watch the shows on pbs where they go back and in the 50s or what have you and and i'm thinking about uh, to to your point of things like marty robbins um, a white sport coat you know how how great song but bland or the four lads or the four races or things like that and then alvis comes along uh, fair to say Perfect timing for him. Uh, the best man, everything fell into place for him, much like it did for the Beatles uh, several years later. Yeah, you know, it, it, he was really a symbol of that counterculture because his music helped bring what was traditionally considered black music to the masses in the form of rock and roll. All of the hip shaking. And, and even though that you look at it now, right, you watch those videos and it's so harmless. It seems like how can anybody get upset over it when all you have to do to get upset is just go on Twitter for like 30 seconds and you'll just have bombs going off in mm-hmm. front of you. But it really was a symbol of rebellion. And all of these years later, when people try to create controversy or when they have hits, um, you know, it's it's easy to pass by Elvis for being the first one. But all of these artists from the Beatles onward, they don't get anywhere without Elvis just busting down those doors. I truly believe that. Now, um, Elvis, you know, you you talk about reinventing uh, himself. Uh, Starting off with the rock and roll era, we all, you know, blue suede shoes and hound dog and all that stuff, but it wasn't until really in the later 60s where songs like In the Ghetto and If I Can Dream and Suspicious Minds that we really, really got a chance to hear how Elvis was as a singer, and he was really good. Yeah, there, there is, uh, there's the thinking that Elvis could have been the greatest record producer ever, even better than George Martin, because even though that Elvis never wrote his song and never played on his song, the one thing that he knew was how to use his voice. So when he was serenading us with a ballad or belting out a country tune or singing a gospel song, you know, the only three Grammys he ever won was for gospel music, which is so far removed from rock and roll. But it was the way that he used his voice and he didn't really... um, 
because he didn't see barriers, because he didn't see color lines, he only saw segregation, he only saw the ability to use country and rockabilly uh, and black music and gospel all together. Um, he really understood the power of the song. And even though that the knock could always be that, well, he never really wrote anything, um, you know, you just have to watch American Idol and the judges will always say like you made that song your own Elvis certainly made all of the songs his own once he got to sing them and his legacy uh, Eric uh, our guest by the way is Eric Alper publicist music commentator talking about the 45th anniversary of the death of Elvis can we kind of have a synopsis or encapsulize what Elvis's legacy uh, is and will be or is, is there way too many layers to the onion to uh, maybe do that I think the easiest way to describe him would be one of the, the biggest icons of the 20th century. Um, he's certainly one of the most well-known human beings that ever lived on the planet. Um, one of the most cele- uh, celebrated, one of the most influential, popular musicians of all time. And, and music does have a way of cutting across all sorts of, of different lines when it comes to the dividing of people. Um, but he has to be up there um, with the all-time greats. And, and it doesn't take a movie from Baz Luhrmann to reach a whole new generation of people. There are still tens of thousands of TikTok videos that teenagers are making, uh, you know, using his songs. A hundred years from now, 200 years from now, we're still going to be listening to Elvis Presley. We're still going to be listening to the Beatles. We might not be listening to really a lot of other music from the 50s. But, you know, every century, there's always a handful of people that kind of survive. We talk about Beethoven or Bach or Brahms in in such esteemed um, waves of the 1700s. Um, There's no reason to think that when people think about the 1900s, centuries from now, Elvis's name will still be mentioned. Eric Alper, publicist, music commentator, talking about the 45th anniversary of the death of Elvis. Always enlightening, Eric. We'll see you soon. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, see, I, I blew it. I should have said thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Thanks, Eric. You got it in. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Now, let's talk about the Internet because everybody comes down and they sit down at their computer, they turn on the Internet, and everything's uh, tickety-boo. But as heat waves become more common and uh, global warming becomes more of an issue, we don't always remember that the Internet has a basis in the physical world like everything else, and if the data centers are damaged, we could find yourself in a really tough predicament. So, Carmi Levy, the technology analyst and journalist, joins us. Carmi, first of all, thanks for joining us. Boy, that's a serious concern. Sometimes my computer just blows up because it's old. This is a whole different ballgame. You're absolutely right, Ted. You know, we've spent sort of years convincing ourselves that everything should be in the cloud. When you log into Gmail, it, there's no app that's installed locally. All of your email just kind of exists out there. It's nebulous. Yep. And the advantage of that is is huge. You're no longer locked to a particular device. It's not like, oh, my, my computer crashed and I lost all my email. That doesn't happen anymore. You sign into Gmail from your laptop, you sign into it from your phone, from your iPad, whatever device, wherever you are, it's all there. It's almost like magical, but we don't think that it's got to exist out there somewhere. So when you connect on your phone, you are actually connecting to a data center, God knows where. It could be in the middle of California, it could be in British Columbia, could be overseas, who knows, but we don't think that there are these massive buildings with thousands of computers, hundreds of thousands of computers stuffed in them 
consuming more energy than a small city. And if those go down, guess what? We're not using our Gmail. We're not using anything. We lose those data centers. We may as well lose the Internet. Well, there was a story that Google Cloud reported uh, during the heat waves in the U.K. in July when it was brutal. It was all over 40 degrees, and a lot of buildings in uh, in the U.K. don't have air conditioning. Uh, they blamed cooling-related failures of one of the buildings that houses its data center in London and unseasonably high temperatures after cooling units failed at a data center in London, resolving in some service outages. I remember, and this has nothing to do with this, but I don't think uh, a few weeks ago when Rogers, uh, we had that massive uh, problem with Rogers and people were obviously very frustrated. That's one thing. But now you're talking about something like that, which kind of uh, sh- shows, uh, adds more credence to what you're talking about. That's uh, that's a little scary. <laughs> I'll very politely correct you, Ted. Yep. It's not just a little scary. It's a lot scary. Yeah. Um, because it isn't just Rogers customers. This, these are. This is. It doesn't matter what you're accessing, what who your service provider is. The basic service that serves, in Gmail's case, well over a billion people, could in theory go dark. And you know, when you know, data centers are all about. They consume huge amounts of power. And anyone who's ever used. Uh, a laptop or a desktop computer when it's really working hard, you know, you're editing or rendering a video, doing something that's very compute intensive, playing a game, for example, editing photos, and all of a sudden, you're, you know, the fan kicks in. You, you put your hand over it and you realize the thing is burning up. Um, that's a problem with data centers. Everyone is doing all that. We're sending emails. We're doing all these things in the cloud. Well, the computer in the data center is is generating all this, doing all this work, generating all this heat, and that heat's got to go somewhere. And the problem is, how do you cool that building when it's 40-plus degrees outside? And so, you know, climate change has a lot of impacts, and data centers are uh, unfortunately now kind of you know, a huge target for climate change. Google and Oracle and Microsoft and Amazon, they're all looking at maybe moving their data centers to cooler parts of the world. I think Microsoft even had a plan to put a data center underwater off of Scotland yep. uh, to, to you know, allow it to remove heat effectively. This is going to cost the industry you know, billions of dollars in the years to come. And you and I are going to start noticing it. Our services may run slower or they may not run at all. You know, I, I was going to ask you about uh, storing the uh, data centers below the sea. It kind of sounds like at first people think, oh, well, what are they, uh, you know, they're, they're not thinking right. But uh, are they reliable? Are they practical? That's the problem is, I mean, anyone who's ever tried to do anything under the water versus, you know, in a conventional building knows um, the logistics go up. It's a lot more expensive. Uh, it's a lot more uh, at risk of failure. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it costs, you know, and that's the reason why for Microsoft, it was just a pilot program because they realized the costs were off the charts. The logistics were insane. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, and, and, and the problem also is, is, is you're, you're limited by the speed of light. In other words, when you communicate with the data center, the further away it is from you, the slower the service becomes, the more latency and lag there are in the process. And so, Typically, what companies like Microsoft and Amazon and Google will do, they'll build multiple data centers around the world to try to build them as close as possible to where you and I live. That makes the, the, the services that much faster. 
problem is if you're in the middle of an American desert or even in southern Ontario where it gets pretty hot in the summer, uh, that's not always feasible. And so, uh, you know, yes, you want to put them underwater or put them in the polar regions of the planet. That's not always easy or cheap. Uh, and the problem is something's got to give at some point, especially as the climate becomes less predictable. So I guess the the next question, people are sitting there wondering, uh, what can we do? Uh, people sitting at home on their c- computers right now, what can they do about this possible problem? Or is there anything well, that, that they can do about it? Well, I mean, not, you know, you know. I, you know, as an individual, I can't really influence climate change, and I certainly can't, uh, you know, really you know, fix the data center problem. But what I can do is I can start looking at my own habits. It's like climate change in general. I'm not going to fix it as an individual, but I can certainly change my day-to-day habits a little bit to maybe reduce my footprint, so to speak. So when I'm using my devices, I'm, I'm conscious about the kinds of activities that I'm doing online. And if I, if I finish something, I close it out. I don't just leave it running in the background because that's going to create heat and energy usage in a data center far away. So, you know, only use what you need right now. Close down things and processes that you don't. Take a look at the apps and services that you use that you're subscribed to and start asking yourself, do I really need them anymore? Because maybe if you don't, you can cancel out some of those accounts that you're no longer using so that they aren't sitting in storage perpetually in a data center somewhere. So if you reduce your technology footprint, you might also reduce your climate footprint at the same time. Carmi Levy, technology analyst, uh, something that obviously a lot of people aren't uh, thinking about, and hopefully uh, they are thinking a little bit more about that right now. Maybe the weather will cool down a bit and we can be okay for the next little while. Not that I want uh, winter to come, but you know what I'm saying. Thanks very much, Carmi. Great talking to you as always. Appreciate being here, Ted. Thank you. While it's down from a nearly 40-year high, inflation has slowed, but what lies ahead? Inflation is down to 7.6% from 8.1% in June. The rise in prices is also the smallest gain since July 2021. Senior economist from the Fraser Institute, Philip Cross, says it's good news. That's the good news. Headline inflation is probably past peak, and uh, the worst Mm -hmm. is probably behind us. But as prices for food and rent continue to rise, going up by almost 10% this month, Cross says there is still a long way to go. Knock down price increases in those sectors like housing and commodities that are the easiest to deal with. The hard work is just beginning, and that's reflected in most measures of core inflation that actually worsened slightly in this month. Sofia Vavarutsos, Global News. Well, uh, joining us to talk about uh, inflation is Professor of Macroeconomics at uh, the Toronto Metropolitan University, Eric Cam joins us. Eric, thanks. Uh, last time we talked about it, there were some positive signs. Even better news today? Well, um, you know, as Roy Green listeners like to remind me all yep. too often, I tend to be the bearer of bad news. <laughs> but let me tell you, not working at a bank or having shareholders to answer to allows me to be pretty uncensored and honest. Yep. And what I'd like people in Hamilton and London, all across the province and the country to hear is don't get too excited and be the host of an inflation is over, prices are falling party, because that is really premature. So what you're seeing right now in the statistics is that the price of gas has gone down significantly. We can all see that. And in a sense, that price decrease is actually pulling down the entire inflation statistic. But that's one price. It's a significant price, but it's one price. It, it, it doesn't underlie the fact 
that most of the prices that are in our aggregate basket of goods for which they use to calculate the price level are still going up. And as I said last time, things are moving up. They're just moving up at a decreasing rate. So like I say, before people can celebrate, I'd like to wait to see what happens on the 6th of September when the Bank of Canada gets together for their meeting. Then you will really know how they perceive the economy, whether they leave rates where they are or they raise them. And I don't have a crystal ball. I never pretend to. But if you were asking me to bet dinner for my wife, I would say that they are going to go up probably 25 to 50 more basis points. Now, uh, you talk about uh, some of those numbers, Eric. A natural gas price is up 12.4% month to month, 42.6% year over year. Quite the sizable increase, and I know that that is driving the inflation figures. Well, yes, and you also uncovered another tricky way to look at these numbers is we're seeing right now month over month statistics, which are interesting, but they're not nearly as interesting as quarter over quarter or yearly over yearly statistics. We just don't have those numbers calculated yet. So it's a little bit of look over here, not over here when you look at month over month numbers. And as I say, it's simply a matter right now of gas being pulled in one direction when things like food and rent and energy and natural gas and raw materials and resources being pulled in the other direction. So is it good news? Well, I'd say it's not bad news. But as I say, please don't celebrate yet. This is not a symbol that inflation is over. In fact, it's not going to be over anytime soon. We didn't get into this mess in days, and we're not going to get out of it in days. One of the interesting points in these numbers, Eric, is um, airfares uh, rose about 25% in July compared with the previous month. Yet I've heard stories, Eric, of a lot more people, because they have time now because of uh, COVID the last couple of years, a lot more people are traveling, flying, oh, say, to Europe to spend part of August on their summer vacation. So if that's the case, it doesn't seem to be affecting too many people. Well, it depends on what too many people means. And I say that with all due respect. If you are of the wealthiest part of the population, you're going to probably fly no matter what. You're talking more about what I would call the marginal, and I say that with no disrespect, part of the population, that travels depending on prices. And so it just depends how sensitive you are to those statistics. I know that a plane travel is very high. In fact, I booked my mother and my daughter a ticket today for Barbados and things are very, very expensive, but no one's gonna have a pity party for me. Plane travel is one of the goods that we call elastic, very, very sensitive to price changes. But again, what you're seeing now is a lot of wealthier people, people of higher incomes who didn't get to travel over the pandemic are saying, you know what? I've waited long enough. Life doesn't wait for everybody. And we have to do our vacations now before it's too late for any reason. So I think what you're seeing is a lot of this pent up demand, once again, that was caused by the pandemic now playing itself out in higher consumption. When you talk about, uh, you said you didn't want to look into a, a crystal ball, but you think the Bank of Canada may raise rates. Kind of, uh, you know, break down uh, numbers for a lot of us um, on on um, a mortgage. Uh, how much more than that means people, uh, if if they don't have a chance to maybe change their mortgage uh, be- before the rates go up, how much more a month could people be paying? And again, I'm, I'm asking the average here, and it's probably, uh, you know, it-, it varies obviously from situation to a situation, but how much more would people be paying if that's the case? 
Well, no, I think it's an excellent question. We should always look at the numbers. So let's just take a round number of a $1 million mortgage. Is that as much as that may turn your stomach? That yep. is not that crazy today. Mm -hmm. If you have a million dollar mortgage and it's on a variable rate mortgage and the interest rate goes up by 1%, 100 basis points, that is approximately $400 more a month on your mortgage or $4,800 over the course of a year, who I don't care what, who you are or how much money you make, that's a lot of money. Well, I was going to say, how, how can people afford that if it's $400? You know, and, and, you, and you kind of already said that's going to be problematic for most people. Well, that's the balancing act right now. We are now seeing the actual balancing act of what it is to keep a capitalist economy running well, is you want to bring down prices so you increase interest rates, but you don't want to increase interest rates so high that people put their key under their mat and walk away from their house because their house has negative equity. So what you're really seeing now is an experiment in monetary policy. The Bank of Canada is doing all it can. The government of Canada is doing nothing. So we've entrusted the bank to do the work of both of those bodies and they're doing the best they can. So if you want to hold on to something, it could be worse. It could always be worse. And let's hope that what you see now in terms of gas translates to other goods. Eric Cam, the uh, professor of macroeconomics at Metropolitan University. Wish I could take one of your courses because you break it down for, for people that are not, you know, financially savvy like myself. And you kind of explain things in a, in a really neat way. So thanks for doing that. Enjoy the rest of the day, Eric. Appreciate it. Tuesdays at 9 o'clock starting in September it would be my pleasure. <laughs> okay, thanks very much, Eric Cam. And uh, there's the situation. Uh, he's predicting another slight rate in the, uh, in the uh, Bank of Canada rates. Um, and boy, when he talks about... Uh, when he talks about uh, $400 extra a month on a mortgage, wow. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Today, of course, is August 16th, and it was on this day back in 1977 uh, that we got some shocking news about a, a music legend. And Margie Zaroleta tells us that Elvis fans are in Memphis to mark the 45th anniversary of his death. The candlelight vigil that goes past Elvis's grave, according to Priscilla Presley, his ex-wife. She says it's unbelievable how popular Elvis still is, and she credits the resurgence to the hit film Elvis. Priscilla Presley tells NBC's Today Show she loved the movie, but it made her squirm to see how Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, could have done so much more for him. He should have really probably, probably stayed a publicist because he just didn't have, he, he didn't take Elvis where he wanted to be, and that was hard because I lived it. I'm Archie Zarl now, one of the stars of the two big franchise films is getting treatment for complex mental health issues. Ezra Miller. Whoever you're looking for, it's not me. Played The Flash in Warner Brothers' Justice League movie and is the star of an upcoming solo Flash film. Miller also stars in the Fantastic Beasts franchise and over the past year or so has been accused of increasingly bizarre behavior. Arrested a couple of times in Hawaii, charged with felony burglary earlier this month in Vermont. The actor now says in a statement, they are suffering complex mental health issues and has begun ongoing treatment. Miller admits to recently going through a time of intense crisis and apologizes for any alarming behavior. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Hollywood. This is upsetting. A U.S. government report said the disparity between fatality rates for women and men in car crashes is shrinking. 
The report from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration shows the female fatality crash rate compared to men is significantly reduced in newer cars. Women died at a rate of 6.3% in vehicles made from 2010 to 2020. That's down from 18.3% in cars made from 1960 to 2009. Among the reasons, newer cars equipped with dual airbags and advanced seatbelts reduced the estimated fatality risk for women and men. NHTSA finding the newer the vehicle, the smaller the disparity between men and women in crash deaths. Derek Dennis, ABC News. Which is good if you can afford a, a new car, obviously, but it's good that that is coming down uh, just a little bit. Well, coming up on tomorrow's program, we have, uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about this particular uh, subject because we've talked about anniversaries. Today, of course, uh, Alvis, 45 years. Now, uh, people of my generation, all I have to do is talk about September 28, 1972, and they know exactly what I'm talking about because it is Game 8 of the Summit Series. It's the 50th anniversary of that series, and I know what people are going to say. People of a younger generation are going to say, we remember Sidney Crosby's goal in Vancouver at the Olympics. We remember Canada Cup with Mario Lemieux. That's fine. There was nothing nothing in hockey that united this country more than what happened in 1972 because all that stuff wouldn't have happened without the summit series in 1972 there is going to be a four-part documentary shown on cbc next month to kind of coincide with those particular uh, dates and of course the last one will be shown on uh, september the 28th which is the uh, the anniversary of game eight but we'll be talking to tomorrow somebody who is uh, heavily involved in that movie. He's a co-writer and co-director of the uh, movie and the documentary about the Summit series called Summit 72. And I'm really looking forward to talking to him to find out. Uh, well, you know, I saw a little bit of a, a preview last night. They sent me something uh, a little bit and it, it just it takes you back. Right away, you know exactly where you were, and when you see, and when you see the documentary, and when you see the shots of the people everywhere, I'm not going to give away everything, but when you look at who was watching, and everybody, the entire nation was watching that series, and of course the uh, Game 8, which is uh, the Paul Henderson final goal, when you see that, your mind will flash back right away to what you were doing on that particular day. And as I say, that is uh, something I'm really looking forward to talking about tomorrow on the program. Thanks to William Erskine, our uh, show content producer who put everything together today, lined up all the guests and to William Weber who made sure that everything worked properly and Ted didn't hit any buttons and put himself off the air which sometimes happens on occasion because I forget well what I'm doing here anyway thanks to you as well and we'll look for you tomorrow from uh, 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and 980 CFPL in London thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900 CHML dot com.